0: Jesus' way of being lifted up is not the way of the world, and that Christians, when they take the way of Jesus, now called it downward mobility, when they take that way, you might not win accolades from the world, but you will bring great joy to God and you will do much good in the world.
1: Welcome to the Renovare Podcast, a place for honest conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and my guest today is Marlena Graves. Marlena worked for the Farm Labor Organizing Committee with migrant workers and immigrants and urban youth and on pastoral staff in several different churches. She's the author of multiple books and an adjunct professor at Winterbrenner Seminary. I spoke with Marlena over a video call from her home in Toledo, Ohio. Marlena, tell me about your book. Yeah,
0: I'm glad to talk about this, uh, The Way Up Is Down. I read through the Gospels frequently, I should say, listen to them online uh, before I go to bed at night, just to hopefully absorb the life of Jesus into my life through listening and my imagination and mind. And I noticed that a lot of things stood out to me about Jesus. Uh, first, that He could have been born in a palace, but He chose to be born poor which I could identify with because I grew up very poor in my life. And also, I was struck by how many times, as people say, he talked about the upside-down kingdom. Many of the first will be last, and the last shall be first. And the greatest person in the kingdom will be the servant of all. In the upper room where he bowed to wash the disciples' feet— and he says to those in the room, you don't know what I'm doing now, but later you will. And also Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about, you know, the fancy word kenosis. He emptied himself so that he might be full of God. And so my book basically is about what it would look like to empty ourselves of all that is not Christ so that we can be full of the grace of God and live that way. And I think it seems to run contrary to what we see in the broader Christian culture, and I was so disillusioned with the witness of the church that I wanted to look at the life of Jesus and see and contrast it with how we seem to be collectively living. That said, there's a many beautiful saints, people that I've met, but I just feel like our witness is not that of Jesus.
1: What does it look like to empty ourselves?
0: Well, it can be very... Difficult thing to do. I know you knew Dallas Willard, but I remember how he would always use the example of not having to have the last word in an argument or when someone put him down. It could be something, I don't want to say as simple as that, because that's difficult. Not unleashing our anger on people that we could be justified in unleashing it at. We're in a, a time where even Christians use their words to hammer others, even justifiably so. Like sometimes people do and say things that are horrible and awful online, and maybe and in person. And I could see myself easily just striking back or if you're attacked, you know, Jesus tells us in Matthew five forty four to love our enemies. And so I empty myself, we empty ourselves of the right, to strike back at people in interpersonal relationships. Of course, I'm always careful to tell people that we don't tolerate abuse or allow ourselves to be abused. That's not what I mean. But I think, too, in the racial kind of tensions uh, that have continued since the founding of America, those of us that have privilege, and it could be, you know, your racial status, like as a white person, or it could be wealth, Jesus emptied himself of that to serve other people. And that's what it looks like. And it would call for kind of some hard decisions, like what are we going to do with our money? I remember when I was younger, a teenager in my early 20s, maybe it's because I (laughs) didn't have a lot of money, but I could not fathom what Jesus was talking about when he said, you will either serve God or money. I'm like, what does he mean? And over the years, that question has been answered. I think that a lot of times the church bows to what money will do instead of doing what's right. You know, and I know it can be a hard decision because some pastors are put in positions. For example, I know pastors who've been told if you keep preaching this way or that way, I'm gonna take my tithe and take it elsewhere when they're preaching from scripture and, and Christian tradition. And uh, with the tithe goes, it could be a staff position, you know, depending how much money that person gives. Um, I just think a lot of times in the church, we've chosen to serve money instead of serve others and that we can kick people that are down, even though I believe it's, is it Isaiah 42, where he says, a bruised reed he will not break. And it seems sometimes the church is guilty of breaking bruised reeds and hurting the people that Jesus made a beeline to. Those are some of the things I reflect upon in the book, especially that the last will be first. One of my favorite things that I wrote about were the people with intellectual disabilities in my church, just like Lazarus was at the rich man's gate. You know, asking for food and the rich man rendered Lazarus invisible. I think God sends us teachers. I call it, you know, people to teach us the way of Jesus. But at first, we wouldn't think that there are teachers. It might be, again, people with intellectual disabilities. It might be the elderly, the poor, or it could be family members within our own household that God has allowed to be in our life, in our paths. And we ignore them. We can abuse them and denigrate them when they're the very people that God can use to teach us the way of Jesus. And so that's, again, how, you know, the last might be first, like these people that I abuse or denigrate, like C.S. Lewis talks about in The Great Divorce. I talk about uh, Sarah Smith of Golders Green. She was poor on earth, but in uh, C.S. Lewis's rendition, she's a great queen. And I actually think that maybe on the last day or when kingdom comes, you know, the last will be first and we'll be in for a big surprise.
1: There's a very personal piece in the book. I'm curious, how does your story fit into this narrative?
0: Yeah, I could really identify with Jesus. I used to say, Lord, why'd you make me poor? Or did you allow me to be poor? I don't know all the theology behind it, right? I can never ascertain that. I don't think we have for millennia. But I used to wonder why I was allowed to, if you want to use that language, to suffer. And, you know, it's, think about not having gifts on christmas not having thanksgiving dinner i used to hate the holidays because of that i'm just working cutting wood to earn gas money for my dad and that allowed me to realize like jesus said well i w-, you know i didn't have somewhere to lay my head and i was like oh i can be in solidarity with jesus in this way he understands what i went through you know i'm not in the same condition i was growing up But I still suffer, I guess, what would you call like the consequences of I would say it's probably generational poverty, you know, no wealth passed on to, I don't know, to give me some kind of uh, my husband to a cushion. So everything we've had to pay, you know, by God's grace for ourselves, I think that allows me maybe to see from the bottom up, maybe it's allowed me to see people, the people that the world neglects that have been such an example of Christ to me. And it might be the the weight of glory where he talks about people become such bright lights that you're almost tempted to bow down and worship them or such, you know, maybe hideous monsters. And I have felt like this overwhelming, sometimes uh, desire to curtsy (laughs) to people just because I see the love of God and uh the love of Christ in them and see how they live in the everyday, you know, saints, everyday saints. I just almost see light emanating from them. And usually, I mean, they're not even aware of it themselves. Um And so I give thanks to God. And I say, thank you, God, that you've graced me with your presence through this, these people. And so I'm really kind of fascinated with the Lord just, How he turns everything upside down and that he can relate to me and I can relate to him and his, at least from American standpoint, I'm not even going to compare myself to the rest of the world, but what by American standards was poverty.
1: Mm -hmm. I keep a notebook in my pocket at all times. (laughs) And part of it's because I have some memory challenges, but part of it is because I hear something or I have a thought and I just want to remember it. But the other day I wrote, there's a certain trauma to poverty and almost like a maslow's hierarchy, right? That growing up in poverty, it comes with a a lot of challenges that I don't think people outside would know. One of the quotes that got me was this statement, I think it was Howard Zinn, the difference between poor folks and sociologists is poor folks know what they're talking about. You know, there's a there's a certain thing you learn in that that you can only learn from going through it. And I love that that, that helps you connect with Jesus. Who are some of your teachers?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Besides, you know, I love the people at Renovare, but in the context of what we're talking about, I think of Paula, who's now with the Lord. She had Alzheimer's. When I met her, I was the director of discipleship at my church. And, you know, she would sing my name like, Marlena, and... I couldn't believe that Paula remembered my name because she had Alzheimer's. I was, you know, I was newer to the church and her eyes would light up when I came by and and she'd come give me a hug. And she just taught me a lot. I mean, just the sparkle in her eyes when she saw me and not just me. I know other people. But I thought, you know, I think that's how God looks at me, the way that Paula looks at me. And I talk about it in, in the book. At one point, she got really teary-eyed one time she was talking of remembering when she was young because someone called her a moose you know saying she's ugly when she was a young girl she remembered that and she was you know a tall lady and um but I saw such beauty in her and I said no Paula you're so beautiful and uh, another time she started crying because she was forgetting and she was wondering you know is this forgetting going to affect me, my relationship with God? And I said, no. And then I came home and told my husband about that. You know, I asked him, I said, Sean, how do you think the Lord interacts as far as spiritual formation with people that have Alzheimer's? You know, what kind of relationship? He said that Jesus doesn't mind introducing himself to Paula over and over again. And to other people. And I was just like, oh my gosh, yes, that's exactly what I was just floating with his comment about it. Because yeah, Jesus doesn't mind introducing himself to Paula over and over again in a new so Paula was one of my teachers. I used to work with migrant farm workers, asylum seekers, inner city youth. Speaking about poverty, you know, every day it's hard like getting to school and just the obstacles that people have to overcome just to do simple things. And over and over, I just saw love for other people, deference to other people, joy, hard work. A lot of the people that we talk about as our teachers, people have stereotypes like lazy, only wanting a handout. And as like, most of the poor people I know I've ever met are very hard workers. Of course, there are people that take advantage of the system, but I've seen rich people that take advantage of the system and middle class. So taking advantage of the system isn't particularly salient among the poor. It's all levels of society. You know, the Catholics talk about this, even the Eastern Orthodox talk about how the poor can show us the face of Christ. And it's not like you have some kind of sainthood because you're poor. But I think it's just because of vulnerability and there's nothing to prove, you know, nothing to prove. And so you could be full of the life of Christ because there's not a lot of things blocking that. I've often thought that in my own life, like, well, I don't really have much to prove. (laughs) I have no networks I can rely on or point to this or that. And sometimes I've grieved that because I'm like, well, that would be a great help right now in my life. But then it drives me to God.
1: Many of the poor folk I've known are the most generous people. My father-in-law lived in pretty extreme poverty and used to send him food. Like we'd uh, kind of surprise him and have uh, food delivered to his, to his house. Yeah. And he'd invite everybody over. <laughs> uh... <laughs> he just would have a big party, you know. And I just, I love that. There's something beautiful in that. Um, But do you see that too in your work with migrant farmers?
0: Yes, and I think there's statistics too, like, I don't know, per capita or however, the poor are are more generous than those with more money. And I do see it. The generosity comes from maybe memory. You know what it's like not to have, and you don't want other people to go through that. And you know of other people, maybe like your father-in-law, like, hey, you know, people would enjoy a good meal today. They don't have to go shopping. We're going to provide dinner. I, I mean, Jesus himself was poor, right? He was so poor and he was generous. Yes, he was God. But I think about the multiplication of the loaves and the fish. Jesus was like, you know, it's, I know it's going to be hard for you guys to get food, so let's multiply the loaves and the fish. And something else I tell people too, Nathan, is that Jesus, everything he spoke, he lived out. So when he tells us in Matthew 6, you know, don't worry about tomorrow what you will eat or drink, which is a message I have to remind myself of frequently. He said that because he had to consider the birds and the lilies himself because you know, he was poor and he had to depend on our Heavenly Father for food, for his daily bread. And that makes it into the Lord's Prayer. You know, give us today our daily bread. I think he included that because he had to pray that frequently, whether it's literal daily bread, nourishment or whatever else that we need for our lives, because Mary wasn't rich. And and Luke, it talks about how women and others provided out of their purse for the, the ministry of the disciples. Joseph was probably old when he married Mary, and so we don't see any more about him in the Bible after Jesus was 12 years old. So for her to be a widow at that time, she depended on her son to take care of her. So Jesus was caring for his mom. Like you said, your family with your father-in-law, but in this case, Jesus was caring for his mom. She was part of his ministry. And so I'm convinced that he knew what it was like to consider the birds and have to depend on the, the father for the daily bread.
1: You mentioned loving our enemies. What does that look like? How did you work that out?
0: When I was young, I was in Puerto Rico in the fourth grade and I was almost kidnapped after I got off my bus. I think the person probably would have kidnapped me, but I got off the bus. This car followed me and said, Hey, in Spanish, where's this place? And, you know, I'm like a nice person. You know, I'm like, Okay, yeah, it's here. And I went up in the Man grabbed my hand and exposed himself and tried to make me touch him. You know, it was an assault. And that picture stayed with me. I was um, 10 years old. Well, after that, I was in fourth grade. I, you know, I didn't want to be around men. My parents would say, hey, go to the store or go into this run in and get me like a, you know, a milk or whatever. I didn't want to do that. You know, this was the late 80s. But I remember in fifth grade, we moved back to the mainland of the United States. We lived in this little green trailer, and I didn't have much to do after I would do like whatever chores I had and do homework. So I would read the Bible like for two to four hours a day, about the ages from ten to fourteen. And I think that's what my people have said, you have a divine imagination. Well, I think that's where it came from, looking back. But I remember what Jesus said in matthew five forty four that you have to forgive your enemies. And that me, I'm like, okay, that means I have to forgive this man whose face I remember even to this day, whose name I will never know. And so I started praying at 11 years old for this man that assaulted me because Jesus said, pray for your enemies. You know, I'm a, like taking Jesus at his word as a little girl, because if you don't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. You know, it's also, it also talks about that in there. That's when that practice of praying for your enemies and forgiving them started in my life. So fast forward i should say i've worked with farm migrant farm workers who provide our food and there's a lot of human rights abuses against them and asylum seekers and immigrants and i know it's for some people it's a great political issue for them for me uh, meeting people and hearing their stories firsthand i think it's a human rights issue and a biblical issue and you know that we have a certain kind of obligation to them But because of that, I get attacked by people. You know, I've been called on christian a communist, or, you know, all sorts of what people consider derogatory words. And I was like, I just have to pray for people that say things to me. I said, you have no idea what you're talking about. You just are acting on hearsay. I've talked to people in person, and so I have to forgive them for insulting me. And so I have to wrestle with that to forgive my brothers and sisters, not only for hurting me, I don't know what the word is for that, but when I see them doing harm to the most vulnerable people.
1: I have a theory on Jesus' statement to pray for our enemies, that it's as much for us as it is for them. And the reason I say that is because when I do that, it sets me free. There's there's something that happens when I really dig in and pray for someone, you know, how we define enemies, a, a tricky word, but it changes me. Mm-hmm. and i it liberates me from their nonsense or abuse. What do you think of that?
0: I think you said it so well. And i think about what kind of spiritual formation in Jesus's humanity, right? Because yes, he was fully god but fully man. Like i think his spiritual formation culminated in two things. You know, in the garden of Gethsemane when he said not my will but yours be done. When he, you know he said get me out of this basically, but he went through with it. And also on the cross, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know, like, so spiritual formation cannot be microwaved. For him to be able to say what he was being speared, spit upon, mocked when his disciples ran away, to be able to forgive his disciples and cook them some fish on the beach afterwards, that was years of culmination. So, you know, some people... Ask well, how can we forgive our enemies, especially if you've been like sexually abused? I I want to be very careful that it could take a maybe a whole lifetime, or you might get to the point where you say, God, I want to be able to do that, but I can't. You know, you're very honest about it. It doesn't always happen right away. And I think it depends on the seriousness of the transgression against you. But I think yeah, it does change us, and it's a one of God's graces. And it doesn't happen always right away. And for some people, I've had to pray for years, you know, because I think that I'm good and it wells up in me again and I get very upset. And then I have to say, okay, God, they claim to be your children too. Please bless them, even though they're doing so much harm.
1: I sometimes start with the prayer of, I want to forgive, you know, or or I want to want to, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah. I don't even want to, but I, I want to be in a place where I would like to. And sometimes that's the only place we can start, you know? With,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, agreed. Yep.
1: For folks reading the book, what do you hope for them to take away from it?
0: There's been a lot of people, like, they're disillusioned with the church for good reason, right? And some people have been, I think, badly taught like that they're Uh, you know, they call it worm theology, like God just can't stand you and God just, you know, God tolerates you. Um, That's not the God I've known. I talk about one point in the book where my daughter, when she was three, and I won't go into the story uh, right now, but it culminates with her saying, so mommy, you're saying God looks happy at me. God looks happy at me. And I said, yes, God looks happy at you. Uh, That was her translation of what we were talking about. Like God looks at us with love and joy, and so I hope that readers would take that away, and also, maybe with some of the stories I shared and insights that you can really live like Jesus. There are people that live like Jesus in the world, these saints, these beautiful people that many of the last will be first, so that's why it's called "The Way Up is Down," because you know the world has a way of success. But Jesus' way of being lifted up is not the way of the world, and that Christians, when they take the way of Jesus, you know, now called it downward mobility, when they take that way, it talks about it in uh, Philippians chapter 2, Kenosis, that you might not win accolades from the world, but you will bring great joy to God, and you will do much good in the world. So that's, that's my hope.
1: It is very backwards. Not just American culture, but church culture. I remember when I was teaching, I used to work with Brother Lawrence's book, uh, Practice the Presence of God. And, and I remember I had a student go, so wait, he was a dishwasher, right? Yeah, he's a dishwasher. Wait, wait how come he didn't move up? Why did he stay a dishwasher? Yeah. You know, he was like kind of a failure. This guy, why didn't he? And, and I thought it is so ingrained in us that this idea of downward mobility or that there's kind of a nobility in remaining a dishwasher, that that was um, a beautiful thing for him to, to stay with that. But it is very, very foreign to us.
0: Yeah, and it's not always easy because we have this message in the church, right? Like, bigger, better numbers, and it's the way of the world that's ingrained itself in the church. But you're right. That's not always the way of Jesus. I mean, it might be for your life, but it's not always.
1: How have you reconciled with the church?
0: I write a little bit about how I've been hurt by the church, and I haven't been forthright about it, but how I've reconciled with it, because I do see saints in everyday life. If I wouldn't have seen people that are like Jesus, I don't know that I could be a Christian. Because people have asked me, why are you still Christian? I'm like, because I see people that live like Jesus. And so when the people that don't live like Jesus, I said, that's not God. I know Jesus and I know what he's like, and that's not it. So um, my hope and prayer is that I don't ever become the things I despise. And that, you know, further down in uh, Philippians 2, that hopefully I will shine like one of the stars in the universe so people give thanks to God. At least that's my prayer.
1: Marlena, thank you so much for your time and your story.
0: Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here.
1: That was Marlena Graves. You can find out more about Marlena, her writing, and her new book, The Way Up Is Down, at Marlena Graves. Com. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to The Renovare Podcast, a podcast made possible by donations from people like you. You can support this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org donate. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort which offers resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find articles and other resources at our website, renovare.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast, And we love hearing your questions or thoughts. You can email podcast at renovare.org or tweet at renovare. This podcast is produced by Brian Moricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. Other music is by Lee Rosevere. Until next time, be well, friends. Be well.